Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. This is Jay Shapiro again. Thanks for listening. I want to say a few more words about the uh, two-state solution, something which simply refuses to go away, even though it's not realistic. Commitment to the two-state solution was voiced four different times during President Joe Biden's recent visit to the Middle East. Biden himself mentioned it. The Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas mentioned it. The leadership of Saudi Arabia mentioned it. And Israel's interim Prime Minister Yair Lapid mentioned it. Lapid became the Prime Minister very shortly before Biden arrived. He took over from the previous Prime Minister and they had an agreement that uh, he would become Prime Minister for two years. It turns out it's going to be shorter than two years because he's going to have an election. However, the point is that the, the Prime Minister went Biden arrived here was Yair Lapid, and he mentioned the two-state solution. On July 15th, Biden arrived in Bethlehem, and Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, who's now, I think, in the 15th or 16th year of his four-year term, he said, Mr. President, we look forward to the efforts of your administration to stop unilateral actions that undermine the two-state solution, meaning, of course, unilateral actions by Israel. So when, uh, after Abbas said this, Biden responded by saying the Palestinian people deserve a state of their own that's independent, sovereign, viable, and contiguous. Two states and two peoples living for, together next to each other in peace and security. In a press conference prior to Biden's departure from Israel to Saudi Arabia, our Prime Minister Lapid said, I haven't changed my position. A two-state solution is a guarantee for a strong democratic state of Israel as the Jewish state. So afterwards, Biden met uh, with the Saudi king uh, and the crown prince, and uh, they, they mentioned something that was they had spoken about and endorsed back in 2002. It was called the the Arab Peace Initiative, endorsed on three different occasions by the Arab League. It declares that given a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestinian dispute and a just resolution on the Palestinian refugee issue, full normalization of relations between the Muslim world and Israel would follow. In other words, 
The Saudis said, if we recognize, recognize a Palestinian state, then they will essentially recognize Israel. And yet, in the years since 1967, and we're talking more than a half century, it's 55 years since the Six-Day War, in a series of peace negotiations and other proposals, for example, there was a something by President Trump called Peace to Prosperity Plan. Despite all these things, uh, the Palestinians have been offered sovereignty alongside of Israel, but it's been rejected over and over again. The reason for this rejection is fairly easy to understand. It's quite simple. A two-state solution is not what the Palestinians want. It's not, it's not what the Palestinian cause is all about. Perhaps the major part of Palestinian opinion shares the view that Israel is illegally occupying Palestinian land and that, that it conquered and colonized. The Palestinians believe that all the land from the river to the sea meaning from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, is Palestinian, and the state of Israel should be ejected from it. All kinds of uh, questionnaires have been given out and uh, polls taken among the Palestinians, and the overwhelming majority of Palestinians believed that this land was stolen from them by the Jews. The Hamas and the PLO and Fatah are one on this ultimate objective. In other words, these three Palestinian organizations disagree to, with each other to the point where they actually go around killing each other, but they agree on one thing, that the Jews don't belong here. And they all believe that they have to take up arms to get rid of the Jews. It is on the tactics to achieve it that the main Palestinian parties differ. And that disagreement is so basic that it has ensured the Hamas and Fatah have remained at each other's throats for decades. All attempts at reconciliation have proven fruitless, and they go about killing each other all the time. Much of it doesn't even get into the uh, public arena. We don't even know about it. Hamas believes that the only effective way to achieve their desired outcome is through continual conflict and terrorism. Any pause in the terrorism must be temporary at best and provide a tactical advantage, and then they go back to terrorism. The Fatah-dominated Palestinian Authority, the one run by Abbas, continues to follow a path that was actually set out by Arafat. For example, at the Oslo peace discussions in 1993 and 1995, 
uh, decided to woo world opinion by overtly supporting the two-state solution, uh, even though, of course, he didn't believe in it. Not long after the conclusion of Oslo II, uh, uh, Arafat held what was intended to be a secret meeting with Arab leaders in a Stockholm hotel. To his embarrassment, both his tactical plans and his strategic objectives were leased to a Norwegian daily newspaper called Dagen. He told Arab leaders, according to Dagen, that the PLO intends to eliminate the state of Israel and establish a purely Palestinian state. Now, after Arafat died, the new leader was Mahmoud Abbas, who's still there, and a ter determined effort was made to win over world opinion to the idea of establishing a sovereign Palestinian state within the boundaries that existed before the 1967 Six-Day War. That is, including the West Bank and East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. But pressing for a Palestinian state within those boundaries inevitably meant acknowledging that a sovereign Israel existed on the rest of the land. Now, this is the pill that Hamas and like-minded rejectionists find impossible to swallow. They refuse to recognize that Israel has any right ex to exist in what they consider their land, not even as a step toward Israel's eventual destruction. By the way, it's interesting, um, if you think about it for a minute, there are millions of Palestinian refugees. If theoretically they were to agree to a Palestinian state, just let's say in Gaza and the West Bank, the question would be, where would they put all these people? Take a look at the map. And there isn't room for millions upon millions of Arabs who aren't living here yet. But if indeed they show up, first of all, where will they live? And second of all, what will they do for a living? Right now, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas in the Gaza Strip don't provide enough working sources of work for their people, and thousands upon thousands of Palestinians come into Israel every day in order to support their work and support their families. So this, this you never hear this part of the uh, of the conflict that where would all these people earn a livelihood if they were suddenly pushed into a a palace? Palestinian state. Now, none of this is a secret. So you ask yourself a question. Why does so much world opinion support a two-state solution in the full knowledge that this outcome is not what the Palestinian leadership or the Palestinian people want, that that's what they want, a two-state solution? 
Every time a survey is taken among the Palestinians, and if we assume that the surveys are correct, most Palestinians reject a two-state solution. That's not what the people desire. Global opinion today refuses to acknowledge this. Ever since 2007, when Hamas seized power in the Gaza Strip and the violent overthrow of the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian people have been split in two, and at least half would never subscribe to a two-state solution. Indeed, any Palestinian leader who agreed to a two-state solution would be denounced as a traitor to the Palestinian cause. Now, Saudi Arabia today advocates a two-state solution as, as a prerequisite for normalization within the context of the Arab Peace Initiative. But Saudi leaders failed to take into account that the initiative was drafted well before Hamas gained control of Gaza. The, the, uh, the, the Arab Peace initiative, initiative was back in the year 2002. Today, the situation, 20 years later, today is 2022, it's radically different from what it was in 2002. It's also odd that so little thought has been given to what sort of two-state solution would be if they acknowledge Israel's right to exist. Uh, Since Hamas would never participate or be a signatory to any agreement that makes a two-state solution, Gaza would be excluded from the arrangement. The Palestinian state would only be in the center, center of Palestine. What sort of sovereign Palestine would, would it be if half the population doesn't live there? Has world opinion ever faced up to the truth? The awkward truth that in order to achieve a genuine two-state solution, the Hamas organization must first be kicked out and disempowered, because Hamas does not agree to a two-state solution. Now, interestingly enough, to avoid a uh, constant conflict, uh, some creative thinking came up on the under the Trump administration. Back in 2018, when Trump made the peace proposals, Abbas was asked his view on a federation. He is on record, for what it's worth, as favoring a three-way confederation of Jordan, Israel, and a sovereign state of Palestine. In such a confederation, states retain their sovereignty, but agree to collaborate on certain security, defense, economic, or administrative matters. They would appoint a joint central authority to coordinate the arrangement. And of course, Israel could never allow this Palestinian state to have an army. 
The idea of a three-state confederation covering the whole of what was originally Mandate Palestine is, might sound like a, a, a good idea. The, uh, and there are some who really believe that a, a three-state solution, if you will, leading away from unending discord here would be a real solution. Of course, in, you have to ask yourself a question. Would the Palestinians allow their state to be without an army? Hard to believe. And a, a tremendous large Palestinian population exists in Jordan. So what would Jordan's attitude would be? By the way, many years ago, I uh, had occasion to take a uh, trip to uh, Jordan. I d actually, I did it on several occasions. One, on one occasion, uh, I was shown the palace where uh, King Hussein lives, and it's really a fortress because uh, the king knows that he's not too popular among the Palestinians, and the Palestinians are the majority of his population. So the two-state solution is talked about, and, and books are written about it, and a lot of reporters and commentators make money discussing it. But if you really think about it, there's simply not going to be a two-state solution uh, and if there is one, it'll be generations away. And I've made this point many times in the past, something that people slide past and don't uh, talk about. They ignore the educational system and the Palestinian Authority. The educational system in the Palestinian Authority, at least since 1994, children are trained to believe from pre-kindergarten until they graduate college, that the state of Israel has no right to exist. So if you take an Arab kid who started school in 1994, today he is, a, he is an adult, and he has been taught for his entire life, lifetime that the state of Israel has no right to exist. How do you make peace with a, a population that is so brainwashed? Even if they change the educational system in the Palestinian Authority tomorrow morning, it would take two or maybe three generations until there was a population in the Palestinian area that was willing to live in peace with Israeli neighbor next door. I never ever see this discussed. And this is at the bottom line, this is under everything. The education system under the Palestinian Authority has raised several generations who are now adults who do not believe that the state of Israel should exist. That is something, obviously, we cannot live with. So a lot has to change 
before you can even dream of a two-state solution, forgetting all the other things involved about, like where are all these people going to live and what are they going to do to make a living? It's simply way beyond the way people think and write today. The bottom line is the two-state solution is just something that people use to make a living. Commentators, opinion makers, politicians, everybody else, but the chances of it really happening on the ground simply do not exist, not for the foreseeable future. Maybe it's unfortunate or not, but it is the way things are. I mentioned the fact that the two-state solution is really just a, a dream or a nightmare, and the chances of it occurring are really nil. And then after I prepared that segment of the program, I came across an article uh, that I think supports and reinforces what I said. And I want to share uh, what this article says, because I think it gives a good picture of what's happening. Remember, back in the early 1990s, uh, with the Oslo Agreement, the Palestinians were giving two areas, one in the center of the country and the other the Gaza Strip. The Palestinian Authority was supposed to rule these two areas, and eventually they would become part of a Palestinian state. The problem, among others, is that the Palestinian Authority actually doesn't rule in these areas. They were kicked out in a violent revolution uh, in 2006 from the area around Gaza. So there's no one there who represents the Palestinian Authority. And in the center of the country, the Palestinian Authority is rapidly losing control of the areas. If you look at the map, the northern West Bank, because hundreds of gunmen, there are at least four armed wings of different organizations in the West Bank. One is the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, for short, it's called the PIJ, and the Hafatah, they have the Al-Aqsa Martyrs, and the Al-Quds Brigades, and these various groups who don't get along with each other have stepped up their attacks on settlers and on Israeli soldiers and on the installations of the Israeli army. Most of these gunmen are based in refugee camps and in villages in and around the cities of Nablus and Jenin. In Nablus, scores of Fatah and PIJ gunmen are also based inside the old city. The, uh, by the way, when Israel still controlled those areas, uh, I served there as a... Um, soldier, and uh, we used to go into those uh, uh, Arab uh, refugee camps and, and villages on patrols, 
and it's uh, as time went by, it became more hostile. In the beginning, I remember when I first served there, uh, the uh, we went through with little comment and no stone throwing. But as time went by, it became much more hostile. Now, what's happened is that the presence of gunmen on the streets of Nablus and Jenin essentially underscores the weakness of the Palestinian Authority, which is supposed to be the organization that eventually will rule a Palestinian state. But the leaders of the Palestinian Authority are fully aware that there's little they can do to disarm the armed groups and the individuals who go around carrying weapons. And probably worst of all is that the Palestinian public views these gunmen as heroes who are ready to sacrifice their lives for the sake of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian cause. They are regarded as the defenders of the people, while at the same time, the leaders of the Palestinian Authority are denounced as traitors and collaborators because they work with Israel. So because of this, the Palestinian Authority does not order its security forces to stop these other groups. And also, the Palestinian Authority is under attack by many Palestinians for refusing to halt security coordination with Israel. And uh, every now and then, the Palestinian Authority leadership threatens to stop security cooperation and they cancel all the signed agreements with Israel. Uh, and this this threat reappears all the time, and uh, a lot of Palestinians don't take the threat seriously, and they have no respect for the Palestinian Authority. And the Palestinian Authority is the group to whom we're supposed to hand over this area to make a state. Now, what's happening is that the Palestinian Authority is afraid and unwilling to deal with all these other groups of gunmen. Many of the armed men belong to Fatah, and that's why they are treated as if they are part of the Palestinian security apparatus. Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, is afraid that these men will turn against him if he orders a crackdown on these other groups. So he also has no reason to go after them as long as they don't pose a threat to his regime. Keep in mind, by the way, that I think he's in the 14th or 15th year of his four-year term. So uh, reporters who go into these areas say that Palestinians are concerned about the sight of large numbers of gunmen hanging around their neighborhoods. And in, and in recent weeks, many Palestinians have complained about anarchy and lawlessness uh, because a number of Palestinians were shot and injured in several attacks by these wandering gangs. 
So, um, for example, um, earlier this week, unidentified gunmen uh, shot a security officer. And uh, it, this goes on. The uh, the the uh, se- several professors in the local uh, university were shot. The and clashes erupted at this university in Nablus, and the students there are very political. The name of the university is Al Najm. It's in Nablus. And the students, some belong to Fatah, some belong to Hamas, and uh, they they have shootouts. And uh, in the, the last several weeks, this has increased. So there are armed clashes, not only between Israeli troops and gunmen, but among the gunmen themselves with each other. So the, uh, the armed groups of Fatah have become the de facto sheriffs of the city of Nablus. This this phenomenon spread to large parts of Ramallah, where Fatah-affiliated gunmen and activists have established their own law enforcement agencies. The, uh, the, the activities of these gunmen in these cities are continued to grow. Nothing's being done to stop them. The same applies to all the major areas in the West Bank, like the Janine refugee camp and the what's happening is that the Palestinian area has become for all practical purposes the equivalent of the wild west where there is no law and it is with these people Israel is supposed to come to agreement to enable them to make a state the Palestinian Authority cannot even control its own people and is afraid to clamp down on these armed groups. And this is the situation which exists in the West Bank. The reason it does not exist in the Gaza area is because Fatah was violently thrown out and the area is run by Hamas. So one terrorist group runs Gaza, and a number of terrorist groups who don't like each other are essentially ruling the area of the West Bank, which is supposed to be under the control of the Palestinian Authority, with whom we are supposed to make an agreement where they make a state. That is roughly the situation. So it's really, really. I, I don't. I, I I hesitate to word, use the word stupid. That's too harsh a word. Let's put it this way: it is hesitant. It is unreasonable to expect a the Palestinian Authority to gain control over that area which it is supposed to rule as a state next to Israel. So everything having to do with a two-state solution is simply not realistic. Israel is a state run by law and order. We have to protect ourselves from our neighbors who essentially are as an outlaw area full of competing armed groups 
Uh, I don't know. By the way, I don't know what their philosophy is in terms of religion, whether they are more orthodox Muslims or not. That's all immaterial. The area given to the Palestinian Authority by the Oslo Agreement is now the Middle East equivalent of the Wild West. And for the foreseeable future, there's absolutely no chance of enabling or allowing them to establish a state. It's simply not in the cards. Now, I want to change the subject uh, for something else. Since I was discussing terrorism, um, there's something uh, in Houston, Texas, it's an annual Houston-Palestine Film Festival. They're now in their 15th year. And what happened is the city of Houston funded the screening of a documentary that glorifies a terrorist named George Ibrahim Abdallah. He was convicted of the murder of an American military attaché and an Israeli diplomat. Uh, he, this Abdullah co-founded the Lebanese Revolutionary Armed Faction back in 1980. He was sentenced to life in prison for the 1982 assassination of U.S. military attaché Lieutenant Colonel George Ray and he assassinated Israel diplomat Yaakov Barsimintov, uh, which the film festival refers to as political executions. Now, the PFLP is uh, designated a foreign terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. And this film, lauding and glorifying a terrorist, was supported by the BIPOC Arts Network and by the city of Houston. The name of the film was uh, George Abdullah's Fight, Fedayeen, George Abdullah's Fight, which details his life, and promotional clips for the film make clear that its goal is to glorify Abdullah and his acts of terror, lauding him as a prisoner of the Palestinian Liberation Movement who refused to sell out his principles. By the, by the way, this film was screened at the University of British Columbia in Canada, and the, the B'nai B'rith of Canada complained about it. According to the film's official synopsis, it's not that it aims to be a tool for better understanding of the political and social context in which the fight takes place. And the film features interviews with violent political actors, uh, the head of a Belgian terrorist group, and uh, the, uh, they also interview Abdullah's brother, who's a communist militant and an unwavering supporter of his brother's cause. In other words, the film law is laudatory and glorifies terrorism. It was supported by the city of Houston and by other organizations. The uh, So the uh, Houston-Palestine Film Festival and the city of Houston 
were requested to comment, and so far they have not commented. So here you have a film glorifying terrorism being sponsored by the city of Houston in Texas. Uh, this appeared in a in the back pages of a local newspaper, and uh, I think it's worthwhile for the re- listeners to know, particularly if you live in Houston, maybe you ought to contact uh, the municipality of Houston and ask them why they support films lauding terrorism. Uh, but uh, these are the facts of life. They, they don't get big headlines, but I try to find these things to share them with the listeners. By the way, uh, it's very unfair how Israel is treated in the broader world media and broader world politics. There is no doubt that there is a usually biased press against Israel, and it's very difficult for diaspora Jews to deal with that. Most of the Jewish communities around the world would work equally as hard within their own countries to get a more balanced perspective of Israel through the media, politics, education system. But for the average layperson outside of Israel, without a deep understanding of the complexity of the issues, they would get a very distorted view of the issues and have a lack of understanding of the complexity of the historical and religious issues. So it's really important that Israel, at least, the government of Israel, should take upon itself the education of diaspora Jews so they can defend Israel. No doubt, uh, most of the majority of Israelis like to live in a peaceful country with peaceful borders. But Achieving this is obviously complex, and the distorted image of Israel in the world media is an, is an issue that clouds the relationship between non-Jews and Jews outside of Israel toward Israel. A lot of the Jews who have to defend Israel simply do not have enough information and facts in order to defend Israel properly. And that's really, uh, I think, a job of the Israeli government. As I understand, they are starting to take steps to better educate at least the leadership of the uh, diaspora community and the students, Jewish students in the diaspora community, so they understand the reality and the history of this part of the world. It's really a combined responsibility to improve the relations between Israel and the diaspora, uh, the entire diaspora, not just the United States, because the combined weight of the non-American diaspora countries together supporting Israel is critical. In in England, France, Germany, Australia, Switzerland, Hong Kong, South Africa, it's important that, that Israel takes the views of these countries seriously, and it's important that the Jewish diaspora uh, works toward improving these relationships, uh, having a much more balanced view. 
It's uh, it's important that Jews outside of Israel know more about Israel, life in Israel, the history of Israel, and in, in truth, Jewish history in general. Education is a key in order not only for the growth and the future of the community itself, but its ability to defend itself and to defend Israel in the face of what often is simply lies. We have a responsibility to educate the Jewish diaspora. I think it's Israel's responsibility. And I understand that some initial steps have been taken, but really it's, it's a fight in our struggle for existence. I'll be back after the break. Hello, listeners. My name is Gila Perach Hirsch, and I live in Israel, and I love it here because in Israel, I can feel the hand of God brushing my cheek. Hi, my name is Arnie. I'm from Jerusalem, and I love Israel because it's my happy place. My name is Hannah. What Israel represents for me, freedom to be who I am, and all the other amazing things that small country had accomplished, it just makes me so proud. Thank you, Israel. Hi, my name is Morris Klein from Melbourne, Australia, and I love Israel because I'm Yisrael Chai. Hi, this is Michal from London originally, now Natanya. The reason I love Israel, I would probably say Israel, where every Jew feels at home. Hello, this is Harold from Jerusalem, Israel. I love living in Israel because my inside life and my outside life are one and the same, and they blend smoothly and uniformly with each other. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back in Jay Shapiro, and at first I was going to call this program under the radar. However, the first item that I want to discuss is something that should really not be under the radar at all, and I think the listeners will understand when I describe the details. We had an anniversary at the beginning of July, July 4th exactly, and I looked in the newspapers for several weeks to see whether this anniversary was mentioned, and it got very little coverage, and therefore I want to remind the listeners of what it was about and the fact that it was historical and indeed should get more coverage every year. For Israelis, the 4th of July is not only the Independence Day of our friends in America, but it's also the anniversary of a famous Israel Army raid in 1976 in Entebbe, in Africa. There were hostages there, which I'll explain in a few moments, Terrorists were killed, and the rescuers suffered only minimal casualties. Entebbe in Uganda was an unmitigated achievement for Israel and a counterism inflection point for governments across the world. Now, the whole thing started on June 27th. The, an Air France Airbus 
A300 was en route from Tel Aviv to Paris, and it was hijacked by Palestinian and German terrorists. The, uh, actually, they, they got on the plane in Greece, where the Greece, Greece had the very lax security procedures, and the uh, terrorists got on the plane during its stopover in Athens and took control of the aircraft shortly after it took off. Now, these hijackers first diverted the plane to Benghazi, where they were welcomed by then Libyan President Muhammad Gaddafi, who, of course, we know was subsequently assassinated. But then he was in his prime. He was the leader of Libya. The plane left there, and they took the aircraft to Entebbe in Uganda, where the strongman was Idi Amin, and he offered the hijackers a place, and as it was pre-planned, additional terrorists joined the original hijackers. What happened was the hostages in Uganda were moved from the aircraft to an old terminal building and separated into two groups, one for the 98 Israelis and non-Israeli Jews, and the one remaining 148 abductees who were neither Israelis nor Jews. This was reminiscent of the Second World War and the Nazis. After 48 hours, the terrorists released the group that was not Jewish, not Israeli, and the Israeli and the foreign Jews remained captive along with the 12-member Air France crew. Now, for their release, the hijackers demanded the freeing of 40 terrorists imprisoned in Israeli jails, as well as an additional 13 terrorists held in countries other than Israel. Now, the government at that time was headed by Yitzhak Rabin, and uh, it was a, a really a dilemma. On the one hand, Israel's policy was not to give in to terrorist blackmail because it would only encourage more terrorism in the future. On the other hand, Israel could not stand by and watch terrorists murder nearly 100 Israelis and Jews. The national trauma from the failures of the Yom Kippur War less than three years earlier had really cast a shadow over the deliberations. The Yom Kippur War in 1973 was really traumatic, and it left its mark on everyone. Now, the terrorists set a um, deadline as July 1st. And uh, as I said, the, uh, the whole thing started on June 27th when they hijacked the plane. And the Israeli publicly agreed, Israel publicly agreed to negotiate with the hijackers because uh, they, because they were stalling for time, and the uh, so they said okay. They gave them a, they changed the deadline from July first to July fourth. So what happened was during those extra three days, the Israel Army General Staff Reconnaissance Unit, which is called Sayeret Matkal, which is really a very very special unit of the Israeli Army, they prepared a raid. And simultaneously, the Mossad, the Israel Secret Forces, used the additional days 
to gather more intelligence for the operation. Now, what happened was, I mean, this is, this is heavy stuff. On July 3rd, the Israeli army presented a military plan that satisfied the Prime Minister Rabin, and with the uh, Prime Minister made some recommendations and it required the full cabinet to agree to what they were going to do. On July 4th, which is also the day of America's bicentennial, Israeli special forces landed at Entebbe, which was tremendous surprise. The, the, the 103 uh, hostages were uh, freed. They were board, uh, boarded on a C-130 Hercules aircraft and flown home to Ben-Gurion Airport. The sole fatality among the strike force was the commander of the unit, Yonatan Netanyahu, the brother of our president, our, our, uh, uh, who was our prime minister. It's uh, Netanyahu's brother, who was much more famous than him at, at the time. Unfortunately, three hostages were also killed during the fight, and another hostage, a 74-year-old woman named Dora Bloch, had fallen sick and was taken to a hospital and wasn't there when the raid occurred, and she was later murdered on the orders of Idi Amin. Now, Israel's rescue, very dramatic, generated front-page news stories all around the world. Books and documentary films have been devoted to the operation, uh, movie dramatizations, the uh, yet the impact of the successful rescue mission went far beyond Hollywood because Israel's achievement shaped the way governments worldwide would approach counterterrorism. Until Entebbe, terrorists were seen to be dictating the agenda. For example, in 1970, an international crisis erupted when Palestinian hijackers forced several airliners to land in Jordan. They blew the planes up, they removed the passengers. It turned out it escalated into a full-scale Jordanian civil war between the Jordanian army and the terrorists. So uh, it, it really was a mess. As a matter of fact, some friends of mine were on one of those planes that was uh, taken to uh, Jordan. And also, you have to remember that uh, during the 1972 Munich Olympics, Palestinian terrorists forced their way into the rooms of the Israeli team. They killed two, they took nine hostages, and they had believing that an agreement had been reached with the German authorities the terrorists led their Israeli captives to waiting helicopters, which flew them to a nearby Air Force base. There, the Germans attempted to rescue, but they botched the operation, and the uh, bound and gagged Israelis were murdered by the terrorists. So these events in Jordan and in Germany occurred and unfolded before a global television audience of like 900 million people. Now, both at that time has appeared to confirm the international community's impotence in dealing with terrorism. That was until 1976. 
when in Ben, Israel's rescue mission was really a game changer. It demonstrated that terrorists could be defeated. The raid inspired governments across the globe to duplicate Israel's achievement by upgrading their own special forces for Entebbe-type operations. For example, in 1977, several years later, Germany's Grenzschussgruppe 9 stormed a hijacked Lufthansa Boeing 737 at Mogadishu Airport in Somalia. They freed 90 hostages. Again, in 1980, Britain's Special Air Service ended a six-day long takeover of Iran's London embassy, killing the terrorists and rescuing 20 hostages. Now, unfortunately, not everyone had success at trying to raise, to save hostages. Interestingly enough, by the way, uh, there was a, uh, a, a attempt by the United States in 1980 to free 52 diplomats held it at the American Embassy in Tehran, and it ended very badly. The U.S. Army's Delta Force rescue mission uh, involved, it involved, just like Entebbe, geographic distances and a hostile local government, but it resulted in the deaths of eight soldiers, the loss of seven aircraft, and the elite American unit never even reached Tehran. At that time, the president was Jimmy Carter, and he later claimed that the mission's humiliating failure led to his defeat in the presidential election later that year. So in a sense, Israel's raid on Entebbe became what you could call the gold standard for such operations. A British military historian named Max Hastings summed it up by saying, in a world of tragedies and frustrations, few people old enough to notice the event have forgotten the great uplift that gave us. Terror was not invincible. The memory of July 4th, 1976, and what the Israelis did, deserves to be preserved for one of the greatest feats of arms in a humanitarian cause since the Second World War. So that's the reason I brought it up today, because for some reason, which I can't explain, it didn't get much coverage. And that really, that really is a pity, because it was a tremendous feat of arms that set an example for the rest of the world, that Jews would go 2,000 miles into Africa to save other Jews. And that, in a sense, really, if you think about it, is one of the reasons why there is a state of Israel. This next item, which I'm going to relate, is something which I am sure that none of the, my listeners ever heard about, because I never heard about it myself. It seems, according to a Saudi uh, newspaper called Okaz, they wrote an article on July 12th, and it wrote that it seems that the relationship between Saudis and Americans 
is older and deeper than what many researchers tend to believe. In fact, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States goes back to 1861 during the American Civil War. Now, at that time, the Civil War was on, and uh, at that time, there was a king called Faisal bin Turki al Saud, who was king in Saudi Arabia from 1842 to 1865. And uh, at that time, the Saudi state was flourishing. It was, it was even before oil was found. And trade was booming between Saudi Arabia and other places. And camel caravans traveled up and down the Arab Peninsula carrying goods and merchandise and food and spices. And they were doing quite well. Now, what happened was that Abraham Lincoln and the Union were having trouble defeating the South. And they looked for alternative ways to transfer weapons and equipment to and from the front lines. So the American Army sent a delegation to Australia where they raised camels. And then they sent an, uh, an, a delegation to Baghdad, which was famous for being the most important camel market in the world. The American delegation arrived in Baghdad and discovered that the best camels were the so-called Najdi camels, and they bought about 800 camels from the merchants who had just come from Saudi Arabia because they bought their camels to sell them in the Baghdad market. But they didn't just stop there. The Americans also contracted with 18 Saudi men who are skilled camel breeders to travel back with them to America. So they made the journey across the world where they helped establish the U.S. Camel Corps. I'm curious how many of my uh, listeners ever heard of it. I hadn't heard of it till I saw the article. There was a U.S. Camel Corps. They trained American soldiers how to transfer equipment by camelback and maintain the health and vitality of the camels. So the, uh, the Saudis now claim that because they did this, they contributed to the birth of America. The, uh, by the way, during the operation, during the Civil War, three of the Saudis were killed and 15 survived. They were honored with the establishment of memorials, and at least one of them still exists under the name Tomb of Hajoli, or Haj Ali, in the state of Arizona. So if any of my listeners get to Arizona, check out where this memorial is to the uh, Saudi camel drivers of the Civil War. So, of course, the, the news in uh, Saudi Arabia now say that the reason they put this uh, reminder in the paper is to show the relationship between America and uh, Saudi Arabia it goes back over many years and... Uh, and in their wording of the Saudi newspaper, they said, and I quote, the blood of the Saudis and the Americans are mixed on the soil of each of them and contribute to preserving the security and independence even before the emergence of oil. So the, uh, 
So the, the, the Saudis now claim that they, I'm sure it's true, I, I have no doubt, uh, the Saudis uh, contribute to the Union cause in the Civil War, and uh, therefore, according to the Saudi newspaper now, there is an undeniable history between Saudi Arabia and America, a mutually beneficial relationship, and an overlap of interest between two allied nations. And that's what the Saudis now claim, for what it's worth. Something I never heard of before, and I'm sure most, if not all, of the listeners never heard about the Camel Corps, the U.S. Camel Corps in the Civil War, which was manned by Saudi Arabians. Interesting marginal fact in history. I'll close this part of the program with a, another uh, item not related to the previous things, and that is that more than uh, 1,500 teachers from Jewish schools all across Latin America attended the largest Jewish edu educational conference ever held in Latin America at the Martin Buber School in Buenos Aires. That is, they're trying very hard to keep Jewish education alive in Latin America. And uh, the, the conference featured educators and representatives from Jewish schools all across Latin America, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile, and Brazil. And many of the topics dealt with the reality of life in those countries. And... Uh, Israel sent representatives, including our former education minister, and the idea was to make sure that Jewish education remains alive and well in Latin America. And uh, I think it's really in, important that the educators of Jewish schools and throughout Latin America teach about identity and Hebrew language and Israeli culture and that's the backbone of the connection between the state of Israel and the young generation in those communities. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, I'm Leah Haroni. Join me on my show, News from the Torah. Each Sunday, we'll use the weekly Torah portion as a prism for understanding the news today. Listen to news from the Torah to gain clarity about the times we're living in and to understand your own spiritual path in the process. News from the Torah every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The first thing I want to talk about on this segment of the program is something which I call misdirected funds. And it has to do with the visit here of the American president several weeks ago. And since I'm talking about it, I'll give you a little history also. So I think it's quite interesting. The American president, went when he was here, went to visit the Augusta Victoria Hospital, which is in the eastern part of the city, and uh, he gave $100 million of U.S. taxpayer money to Palestinian hospitals in the area. 
Biden claimed that six East Jerusalem hospitals serve as the backbone of health care for Palestinians, which, by the way, means he ignores the fact that there are two major hospitals in the Jewish area, one is Hadassah and one is Sharei Tzedek, that serve all kinds of populations, whether it's Christian, Muslim, or Jewish, and I've been in these hospitals on a number of occasions, and there are all kinds of people there. This is something the American president has chose to ignore. Now, we ask ourselves, what is a Palestinian hospital? Now, the Augusta Victoria Hospital was named after Augusta Victoria, the wife of Kaiser Wilhelm II, the last German Kaiser, and it was originally designed as a guest house for German pilgrims back in the 1910s. By 1914, the building, which is located on the Mount of Olives, which is part of Jerusalem, became Turkish military headquarters, and in 1917 it was taken as the headquarters for the British Army. Just a little bit more uh, history. Uh, in 1920, the British High Commissioner moved in, and, in nearly, and for nearly a decade, that building, the hospital, served as the government house for the British Mandate of Palestine up until the 1940s. So when did it even become a hospital? Well, back in 1950, the Lutheran World Federation and the UN Relief and Works Agency used it as a hospital after war, Israel's War of Independence in 1948 and as part of territory ruled by Jordan. There was no Palestine. After the war in 1948, Jordan controlled that part of Jerusalem. So the Six-Day War ended with an Israeli victory, and this compound, the Augusta Victoria Hospital, became part of Jerusalem. Now, the, uh, the uh, interesting, uh, this hospital, chosen by the, by the administration for a sprinkling of funds, uh, the, uh, it's interesting, a Lutheran hospital that had gone through German and British hands and finally declared a hospital in 1950 in Jordanian territory, the Augusta, Hospital, Augusta Victoria Hospital has 120 beds for inpatients. The, uh, so the hospital is not the backbone of healthcare in Jerusalem. The healthcare in Jerusalem for everybody living here is primarily done by the Sharei Tzedek and Hadassah hospitals. The history of the Victor uh, Augusta Victoria is not part of Jerusalem history, except as to be where fighting had taken place. Augusta Victoria Hospital today is part of the East Jerusalem Hospital Network, which is a network of six hosp hospitals in the eastern part of Jerusalem. It was founded in 1997 with the support of a Palestinian politician named Faisal al-Husseini. Uh, uh, by the way, he was the son of the commander of the local Arab forces 
during the siege of Jerusalem in 1948, and he later became active in the PLO. So what's happened is that the United States has given a good deal of cash to the Palestinian Authority, and uh, the the people who run the Palestinian Authority have beautiful homes, they lead luxurious lives. The people they present in Judea and Samaria have been impacted with textbooks that urge violence toward Israeli and pay for slay for those who commit acts of murder of Israelis. But their life situation has not been improved as it has for those who are Israeli citizens. So instead of giving another $100 million to a corrupt system, the money could have been given to the hospitals like Hadassah and Shari Tzedek that serves the entire, entire population. So the uh, Biden actually gave the money to the wrong place. It could have done a lot of good in the right hands. It could heal wounds and save lives. However, what Biden did was he doled out American taxpayer money for reasons of politics and probably his personal agenda. It will not really help anybody, Jew, Christian, or Arab, here in the holy city. So I just want to give the listeners an idea how U.S. taxpayer money has been squandered when it could have gone for a much better, or for many much better causes. And since I'm talking about money, big money, I want to discuss something else totally different. There's something called APAC, which is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Now, the founder of What's Up, his name is Jan Kuhn, K-O-U-M, has become the largest individual donor to the American Israel Public Affairs Committee campaign, He gave $2 million to support APAC's involvement in this year's Democratic primary. This massive donation, $2 million, was made in June, and the Federal Election Committee uh, released the information according to federal law, so it marks a debut in the world of pro-Israel campaign finance for Jan Kuhn. Jan Kuhn is a Ukrainian-born Jew who is estimated fortune of $10 billion. Now, Jan, Jan Kuhn, a name I admit I never heard of before, uh, the, uh, and apparently he's very publicity shy, He's kept a low public profile uh, and following, he sold WhatsApp to Facebook in 2014 for $22 billion and uh, subsequently he left his uh, leadership role in emerging companies in 2018 and recent reporting by the Jewish Telegraph Agency has shown that Kuhn has spent his retirement from technology building a charitable foundation devoted to Jewish causes. 
He has given $140 million in donations to about 70 groups and during the period from 2019 to 2020, and he's quietly become one of the largest donors in the world of Jewish philanthropy, KUM, K-O-U-M. And it turns out that he gives to right-wing and pro-Israel organizations. He's given money to the Friends of Israel Defense Forces, Israel on Campus Coalition, and the Maccabi Task Force Foundation, which is a group founded by Sheldon Adelson, which aims to combat anti-Israel sentiment on college campuses. He's also donated $6 million to the American fundraising arm of Al-An, which is a group trying to expand Jewish settlements in parts of largely Arab East Jerusalem, and he gave $175,000 to the Central Fund of Israel, a group that distributes donations from the United States to settler groups in the, in the so-called West Bank. And by the way, APAC's United Democracy Project has so far spent $21 million on Democratic primary campaigns aiming to bolster pro-Israel candidates running for Congress and against candidates who have expressed criticism of Israel. So there is a name I admit I never heard of before. He has given a tremendous amount of money to Jewish and Zionist causes, and it's a name that should be remembered, Jan Koum, K-O-U-M, something I never heard of until about two weeks ago when I saw an article about him. And since I spoke about Biden and his recent uh, visit, I just want to add another thought. Uh, Biden visited Israel as part of his trip to the Middle East. He visited Saudi Arabia, and he met with representatives of Arab countries. His visit came at a particularly bad time for Israel. The Knesset recently dispersed. Israel's at the beginning of the fifth election cycle in three and a half years, and the prime minister today, Lapid, is a transitional prime minister who lacks solid political experience, and he's trying to, seeking every ounce of legitimacy and the appearance of a leader at every possible opportunity in order to strengthen his position in the election campaign. So the, our uh, transitory prime minister used the Biden visit to strengthen his own, um, his own political situation. Now, and it should be noted that an American president has never visited East Jerusalem before, not George Bush Sr., nor George Bush Jr., nor D- Bill Clinton, nor Donald Trump, and not even Barack Obama. The symbolic nature of a visit, besides giving them a lot of U.S. taxpayer money, the symbolic nature of this visit has been created to pave the way for the U.S. administration to challenge Israel's sovereignty over Jerusalem. 
when the presidential uh, cavalcade or convoy went to visit East Jerusalem, they removed Israeli flags from their cars. So what happened was that Lapid, who's really a caretaker prime minister, gave them the green light, but he really had no authority to allow such a maneuver, and it was a political mover, he should not allow such a maneuver to take place. And it's noted that there are a lot of uh, uh, American uh, politicians and even a number of UN secretaries who came to visit Jerusalem. There was always a desire to include a tour of the Palestinian Authority areas in East Jerusalem. And despite the many requests received, to my knowledge, to date, this has never happened until uh, Biden did it in his visit uh, several weeks ago. So the, essentially allowing him to visit East Jerusalem to remove the Israeli flags from his car is, in other words, these are political session concessions with for a, for a, for a photo op opportunity with the President of the United States to meet with the leaders of the Palestinian Authority in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel. So Biden's visit to East Jerusalem was a challenge to Israel's sovereignty over the entire city of Jerusalem, and it's important that we take note of it. And by the way, again, under the headlines, Biden restored funding to UNRWA, UNRWA, which hides Hamas rockets in its schools, employs Hamas terrorists, and teaches children to murder Jews. Their textbooks currently used to both Gaza and the Palestinian Authority teach students to die as a martyr by killing Israelis. The, uh, in the, it's interesting, Biden and his administration condemn Jews for building homes in the lawful Jewish homelands in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, while saying nothing about massive illegal Arab building. Truth of the matter is, it's time for the Biden administration to end these blatant anti-Semitic attacks on Jews' rights to live in the Jewish homeland. By the way, Biden has attacked Jews for living in the Jewish homeland throughout his political career. In 1982, when he was a senator, Biden threatened the then Prime Minister Menachem Begin during a Senate Foreign Relations Committee to cut aid to Israel if Israel refused to agree to Biden's demands to, to stop Jews from living in Judea and Samaria. And, the, and Begin responded, I'm going to quote what Begin said, but it's really beautiful. Begin said, don't threaten us with cutting off your aid. It will not work. I am not a Jew with trembling needs. I am a proud Jew with 3,700 years of civilized history. Nobody came to our aid when we were dying in the gas chambers and ovens. 
Nobody came to our aid when we were striving to create our own independent country. We paid for it. We fought for it. We died for it. We will stand by our principles. We will defend them, and when necessary, we will die for them again with or without your aid. That is how Menachem Begin answered Senator Joe Biden back in 1982, and it's really worth repeating. By the way, Israel's present president, Herzog, his father was Chaim Herzog, a former representative of Israel to the UN and a president, the sixth president of Israel. He passionately defended Israel's settlements in a book that he wrote, uh, in 1978, called Who Stands Accused? Israel Answers Its Critic. So what's happening now, unfortunately, that Biden is reported resuming efforts to negotiate a, a deal with Iran. That's, that deal is a mortal danger to Israel's survival. The deal would give Iran the pathway to a nuclear bomb in a few years and give Iran 90 billion U.S. dollars of immediate sanctions relief. And this is really dangerous for Israel. The Biden administration is continually pressuring Israel to allow the opening of a, US, a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem, despite strong Israeli opposition to such a consulate. You have to keep in mind that a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem, our capital, is designed to undermine Israel's sovereignty in Jerusalem. And opening the consulate would violate the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995, passed in the U.S. Congress, the Vienna Convention on Consular Affairs, and it would also violate the Oslo Accords. But the uh, Biden State Department reass reasserted that the Biden administration is committed to opening this consulate in Jerusalem. So um, the uh, it's it, we have a, a, a history of a problematic history with President Biden and I wanted to remind the listeners of these things because they will probably repeat themselves in the coming months in our relations with the United States vis-a-vis -vis Iran. The, to put it, to sum it up, the Biden administration is constantly pressuring Israel and really undermining Israel's rights, safety, and sovereignty. So, but in the meantime, Biden got a major award here in Israel, and that only really encourages Biden to continue his policies toward Israel, which are really hostile if you look at them in detail. So uh, it's a tough situation. Uh, thanks for listening. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing off. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, 
and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 